I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you try and say something, but it isn't just, it's just not quite enough. You want to express how you feel about a situation or about someone. You want them to know the depth of what you feel in your heart. You ever found that prose is never enough? You know, that, that is statements of fact that you just want to write out or say out there. That's just never quite enough, is it? They don't express really the depth of what you want to say with the force and the passion that you want to say it. We end up sounding like, um, you know, uh, like the accountant's love letter. No abuse to any accountants here whatsoever. It was a kind of running joke. It was going around the internet a few years ago. Uh, and it kind of went, the accountant's love letter went something like this. Uh, to the person, person X shall we say, I love you for the following reasons. 1.1, you are a girl. <laughs> 1.2, you have green eyes. 1.3, you are tall. You know, you see prose, just normal facts listed out. That's just not enough, is it? To convey how you feel about someone. The, to convey the true depth of your emotion. For example, in recent history, for, um, I can think of uh, times where I recall historical events. I don't remember so much the facts and the details surrounding those events, but I do remember the images. And I do remember the songs associated with those moments. I can remember back to the Ethiopian famine of 1984. Some of you were alive then, if you can kind of think back that far. You remember the pictures, but do you remember the haunting church bell of that amazing song by Bob Geldof and Midjur? Do they know it's Christmas? The church bell began it, the song, and it's haunting. Because it helps us remember the passion and the, the depth of that crisis. But say a prayer, pray for the other ones at Christmas time. It's hard, but when you're having fun, there's a world outside your window. And it's a world of dread and fear where the only water flowing is the bitter sting of tears. Prose is never enough. Poetry. And song pierce so much deeper, don't they? When the Berlin Wall was taken down and uh, many communist regimes fell, Dire Straits, who were at the time the biggest band in the whole of the world, had written a song about three years before. It was called Brothers in Arms. It became, because of the lyrics and probably the haunting tune as well, the anthem of Eastern Europe. Prose is never enough. Facts about the fall of communism could not satisfactorily express how the liberated nations felt. And so they turned to a song called Brothers in Arms. Now think of the relationships, just in a slightly joking side, think of the relationships that you have been in. You know, did you have a song together? You know, what was your song? Yeah, you know, I, I suggest you don't embarrass each other and tell each other later on what your song was, because some of you will date yourself a bit too much by that. You know, but what was your song? But do you see the power? Do you see the power of poetry and poetry to music? Above and beyond prose or just factual statements, poetry and poetry to music convey what deep down you struggle to make clear. King David is no different. 
Which is why here at the end of this epic two kind of book here, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he, he turns to song. He looks back at his reign and his rule over God's kingdom and he just can't help himself. Obviously, he's a poetic genius and an amazing songwriter, you know, so he doesn't have to find a song from elsewhere and say, oh, that's my song or anything. No, he writes this amazing classic himself. And that is what we have right before us in chapter 22. We just heard it read. Uh, the song we see here in, in chapter 22, uh, which can be found also in Psalm 18, if you didn't know that. Uh, it was obviously number one in the 10th century BC iTunes download chart. But, you know, moving on, it was there for months. Seriously, though, it, this is... David pouring out his heart. But importantly, and remember, this is him looking back. He's looking back at his reign as the king, messiah of God's kingdom. Now, before we look through the 51 verse classic that this is, uh, let me give you four quick things. I'm going to, like four anchors, if you like, to consider before we kind of plumb the depths of this song. Four things then, very quickly. Firstly, remember this song, but also remember the other song too. And what I mean by that is 2 Samuel ends with this epic song about David's kingly reign, but 1 Samuel, the other part of this uh, two kind of parter, uh, began with another song, another great song, Hannah's song. Let me read how that song concluded. 1 Samuel 2 verse 10. The Most High will thunder from heaven, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to who? His king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, these two books of Samuel uh, have told the story of God's king, his king, in fulfillment of Hannah's words. Now, there are loads of echoes, we won't go into it, but as you go through uh, David's song, there are loads of echoes of Hannah's song as well. That is... In one sense, David's song is a celebration of Hannah's song being fulfilled. That's your first anchor. Second anchor. Remember God's purpose for his king. God's purpose was made known through his promise. Uh, that God promised, remember back in chapter 7, we've mentioned it virtually every week, uh, that in, the promise was that in, through, in and through David's house... His throne, God's throne and kingdom, will be established. So as we hear this song of David, remember his promise, because in the promise we see his purpose. Third anchor. Remember God's kindness and David's good rule. Now much of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel have shown us that David truly was, as 1 Samuel said, that he was a king after God's own heart. God's promises and goodness towards David is the very thing that have made him such a great king. The Lord was with him. We read on a number of occasions, chapter 5, verse 10, for one example. Despite his obvious and terrible failures, the Lord was with him. David was great. Because God was kind. Third anchor, therefore. Remember this song, because the other song, but remember the other song too. Secondly, remember God's purpose for his king. Thirdly, remember God's kindness and David's good rule. Fourthly, fourth anchor, remember David's inadequacy. Although the end of this book is actually very, very positive about David's reign and rule, 
We can't forget those two chapters, can we? Chapter 11 and 12, where we see David in his adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband Uriah as he sends him to the front line. David's inadequacy as God's king has been apparent from that moment onwards. And added to that, after those chapters, chapter 12, um, sorry, 13, 14, and following from that, you see David's sons, and they're no better. We get Amnon, and we get Absalom, and it's, dis- it's disgraceful. Something greater was needed, and something better if God's promised kingdom was to be established. And as we hear this song, remember that David's greatness, however great it was, It was never enough. It was never enough. Let's get to this song itself. We're going to break it into three main sections. Sorry to be sort of like very obvious there, but we're going to go for three. Uh, It could have been uh, so many. But let's look at the main themes that this song addresses. Remember, it's a song. A song that as David looks back at his reign and his rule over God's kingdom, he sings as he looks back. And it's a song about three things. You see that on your outline. It's a God who's worth praising, a God who is righteous, and a a God of invincible strength. Let's look briefly at each of those in turn, shall we? Firstly then, a a God who is worth praising. We're looking here very much at, if you turn back onto page 3 to 8, we're looking at verses 1 to 20 mainly here. Cast your eyes down at verse 1 if you want, if you can, because that really sets the scene. It sets the scene for the whole song. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. See how he's pointing back to 1 Samuel? See, this is the lens, if you like, with which we view the whole song. David sings that the Lord has delivered him again and again. So David looks back and what does he do? He kind of explodes with song here. Because God is worth praising. Look at the intensity of it as well. Verse 3 and 4 particularly. Look at it. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the hold of my salvation. I'm reading it like Jenny. It's incredible. Uh, He's my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. I call to the Lord who's worthy of praise. Jenny was right. David's like a machine gun here of praise toward God. And the funny thing is, you know, He can never praise God enough. He just can't do it. He cannot praise God to match the intensity of God's power and kindness. He can't say enough. But why such intensity of praise, if you like? Look at verse 5 to 7. You'll see it there. Look at his circumstances. David there vividly describes here how close he has come at time and time. So close to death. His enemies have been so numerous and so powerful. For example, we can think of King Saul who chased him and hounded him for for so long. David's life, you see, has been littered with threats and distress. He's been relentlessly pursued. Escaping death for David had become like a hobby. As we see in verse 7, his continued cry had been to the Lord and David rejoices because why? He was heard. I want to ask you, is hearing enough? Oh, he's heard, but is hearing enough? 
God is useless if he just hears. What if he does nothing? What if, a God, uh, what if God is just simply an inert force that hears, yet is unable to respond in love, to protect or do anything? I, I just don't want to know a God like that. Thankfully, as we see here, God not only hears, but he also responds. Which is what we see in verse 8 through to 16, I think. Uh, and this explains why, why David's praise and our praise should be so vigorous. God's amazing. He hears David's cry and responds, but the response is amazing because he comes. God comes, and he comes with such explosive, dramatic strength and power. And intentionally here, David recalls God's coming, like the coming, same words he used as, as were back in, when he came in, back in Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when the law was given. He's saying it's that big. God comes to protect David, his servant, and he comes, verse 8, with blazing anger. As such is the power that the world convulses under the power of God as he rescues David. Now, I know you'd be thinking, oh, this is a song, and, he, you know, and yeah, David is just going to be, he's going for it a little bit, and he's going to be embellishing things here. But David just, is, he's not just telling you facts about God's saving power. Yes, he wants you to go further. It's a song. He wants you to feel God's strength, to know it, to long for it if you do not know it. Yes, it's poetic, but all he's looking back to here, we have seen in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. This is David responding to, to as he recalls all of those historical events and God's rescuing work in his life. The poetry simply provides the truth behind the facts. Because this song points to God's immense power as he protects his people. When you know a God like this, as many of us here do, when we, are tr when we truly gaze on his majestic saving power, it should inspire praise. This section ends, look at verse 17 through to 20, with, God, uh, with David here expressing his relief in God's rescue. Look at the language used in verse 17 of being drawn out of deep waters. Interestingly, that little phrase is only used here and on one other occasion in the whole of the Bible. It's where Moses was rescued in uh, Exodus 2. Again, it's signifying just the magnitude of what's going on here. David is singing that God has rescued him and brought him to freedom. And he admits in verse 18, it's nothing to do with him. Nothing whatsoever. David is utterly helpless, he says. So you see, David's praise is just genuine, isn't it? He doesn't praise because he has to. He feels it's going to earn him anything before God. He praises because he sees that God is his kind, rescuing saviour. And, and therefore, he just can't help himself, can he? He has to praise God. I wonder if that's true of you and me. 
The Lord is a God who is worth praising. Secondly, let's have a look. Second point on your outlines there. Uh, God is a, David sings this song about a God who is righteous. We're looking here particularly at verse 21 through to verse 31. Do have a look at verse 21 and 25. Just cast your eyes down and, and you'll see there's a quite a, a big similarity in those verses. Verse 21 and verse 25. It's called an inclusio. And what, what lies in the middle of those two verses really explains those two verses. But many people will look at these and it kind of is a bit confusing, isn't it? Especially given what we know about David's past. It may even seem a little bit arrogant for David to say these words. Look at verse 21 with me if you can. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. So, you know, we're all thinking, right, he slept with another man's wife and then got the husband killed on the front line. And David still sings of the cleanness of his hands. What is going on here? Now, verse 22 to 24 kind of add to the confusion a little bit because David seems to be painting himself in a kind of like a self-portrait near on perfection, isn't it? But we know the reality. The language, you see, I think can be quite misleading in the way that we understand some of these words. Let me explain. Look at verse 23, for example. Now that is really speaking much more of the trajectory of his life. The, his overall kind of faithfulness, his overall fidelity to a, it, with God. Uh, the word blameless in verse 24, for example, you see that there? Blameless is, the way it's used here, he's not speaking of perfection. Rather, it speaks of a kind of a wholeheartedness, an integrity in the broader view of his life. David knows his weakness. He's confessed his weakness. We have all seen his weakness. But what we've seen also of David is that he has guarded himself against his weaknesses. He has learned from him his mistakes. Oh, he speaks of righteousness and cleanness in verse 21 and 25. But he's not saying, I'm perfect. He is more singing of, that's the direction of my life. Over and above that terrible indiscretion that you've all read about in chapter 11 and 12. We must remember, you see, that that overall, David is a king of consistent obedience and faithful loyalty to God. And as the song goes on, it simply shows that God is righteous and he is just. We see, therefore, that that as David sings, he rejoices that God honours the pure and blameless. David's experience before God, who is righteous, is the way of all of us if we are God's people here today. Here in 2 Samuel, uh, we see that the way of the Christian is made clear. God's a lamp, look at verse 29, God's a lamp and light in our darkness. Allowing us to advance whatever our struggle in verse 30. Because in verse 31, his way is revealed in his perfect word. That is true for us as it was true for him. But God is righteous and just. And those of us who faithfully follow him and trust him with our whole lives. Living out his word as verse 31 says. We must expect the blessings that he has promised in his covenants. No, here in 2 Samuel, the blessings are physical. 
physical protection uh, and physical kingdom advancement, if you like. But for our blessings, they are no less significant, just more spiritual than physical. So here David sings of his righteousness before a God that is righteous, who is just, who will pour out blessing to those who are obedient to his covenants. Oh, David had a shocker, didn't he? He had a shocker back in chapter 11. But he was the king after God's own heart. Despite the endless struggles in his life, being chased by Saul and all the battles against the Philistines and all the other kind of invaders, despite those struggles, what we learn here is that it matters how we live. It really matters. In and through our struggles and our difficulties, it matters how we live. Whatever the afflictions that we face in our lives, they're not an excuse for turning away from God and neglecting to live according to his word. Because God is righteous and therefore he is just and he will not turn a blind eye. What about us therefore? Like David, I I guess we must orientate our hearts and our lives to be faithful before God, to live according to his word. And like David, we must understand that our consistent loyalty and our faithfulness will never be enough. It will never be enough before the perfect and righteous God that we serve. We need, like David needed, a righteousness not of our own which we find in the blessing of the new covenant, which was established in the blood of Jesus. Our Messiah King, who coincidentally was born in the city of David and in the line of David to fulfill God's promise of 2 Samuel 7. So we've seen David sing a a song about a God who's worth praising. And secondly, a God who is righteous. And thirdly, a God of invincible strength. Let's turn now, if we can cast our eyes down to verse 32, to the end of the the song, if we may. We see a God of invincible strength. Now, the emphasis in this last section uh, is less on the deliverance of the king under pressure. It's more about his dominion, his rule, his reign. A dominion and rule which we see that only God provides for him. So David sings of God's invincible strength. Now the song now traces how God gives his king victory and how other nations come and tremble before his feet. Look at verse 32, for example. Let me just kind of machine gun through a few verses here. David, uh, God is David's rock in verse 32, his strength in verse 33, enabling him to stand in verse 34, training him in verse 35, saving him in verse 36. The pitch, you see, is really clear. And although David speaks in the verse 38 and 39, in the first person, which kind of, ooh, alarm bells go off at that point, don't they? Look at them. David says, I crushed them completely, and they could not rise, and they fell beneath my feet. You kind of think, you arrogant so-and-so at that point, don't you? But very quickly, verse 40, look what he does. You, God, you arm me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. Ah, you see, David's rule 
is broadening with the invincible strength of God. And by verse 44, we see David is the head of nations. Verse 45, therefore, he sings. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. David sings of God's invincible strength and whatever the size and might of empire or army. Look at verse 46. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. David sings of a a God of invincible strength. I hope that's clear. But remarkably, look at the last verse. This kind of slightly blew me away and it's, it's an interesting end, isn't it? Look at... As he reaches the end of the song, it's big crescendo. You can imagine the music ramping up with all those wonderful descriptions of God's enabling, invincible and overwhelming power and strength. He finishes his masterpiece and look, he gives his king great victories. It's the final reminder of God's invincible strength. But then David sings, look at it. And you can imagine, you've had clashes of symbols. The song has just got to its utter peak and then quiet. He shows unfailing kindness. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. This forever kindness It's exactly the same forever kindness. The the Hebrew word is chesed. Okay? It's the same forever kindness that was spoken back uh, back in chapter 7. There God promises uh, David that his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And what David is doing here as he finishes his song is to remind himself and is to remind me. And is to remind you that God's kingdom is not hanging in the balance here. God's kingdom is determined by a decree that shapes history. God's kingdom doesn't rest on the shoulders of David here or our shoulders, but on the sure and certain promises of God who is invincible and overwhelmingly kind. I think David's song should rid us of any arrogance to think that our church our services, our teaching, our inviting of people, or anything that we can think of as us. I think this song helps us to rid ourselves of any arrogance that think we will establish or grow God's kingdom. We need to recognise that it is God who will do that, who's invincible in his power, who will grow his kingdom church. And that is what David sings about. And I pray that that is our song too. At the Battle of Agincourt in uh, 1415, the English king, King Henry V at the time, ordered his men before battle to fall down and prostrate on the ground and to sing. And they sang Psalm 115 out aloud. They sang these words, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. I think we need to be more King Henry V-like. 
King David-like. For example, I hope we approach, for example, this evening in tonight's carol service and, and the next few weeks in the carol services with the same humility and the same understanding as well. God has invincible power and can melt the hardest of hearts. Who haven't you invited, for example, this evening? Who haven't you invited thinking, oh, they will never say yes. You will have thought of people and you go, I know them. They're so stubborn. They're so hard-hearted. There's no way they could come. Yeah, I might be able to get them here. I'll buy them a dinner and get them here. But they'll just sit here and they'll be miserable. There's no way. They're so hard-hearted. Has there, who are those people that you have not invited because you think of them in that way? Have you ever met Tim Webb? Comes here regularly, doesn't he? He's the hardest-hearted man I think I've ever met in my life. And the gospel melted him. Who haven't you invited? We learn slowly, don't we? Even the fact that you're here should be enough for you to realise that God has invincible power to soften the hardest of hearts. Because you are that hard heart. It's that invincible power that guarantees the eternal kingdom of God, but God must also be the recipient of the glory because he does the work. And let's pray that that is so this evening and throughout Christmas time here. And so David sings this song, looking back, remembering that the Lord is a God who's worth praising, a God who's righteous, and God has invincible strength. But what's his conclusion? I'd like you to turn. We're literally going to spend just two moments at these last words of David in chapter 23. We've not heard them read. I would like you to read them later if you could. But he's looked back. But now, in these last words in verse 1 to 7 of chapter 23, he looks forward. He anticipates the future. The future of God's kingdom in the light of the song that he has just sung. Sung. And the theme of these words is, is literally God's kingdom to come. Hence the title on your outlines there. Therefore God's kingdom is. And let me give you just three quick concluding points to, to tell us and show you what God's kingdom is like. God's kingdom is certain, first of all. God's kingdom is certain. In this, uh, we've had a song. And now God reveals some words to David in verse uh, 3 and 4 there. And God speaks and gives him these words to say, The ruler over mankind promised in God's word to David is sure and certain. It's not a piece of human wisdom or insight. It is a divine decree. It is certain. He's speaking of Christ here, of course. And part one is complete. That is the eternal kingdom promised to be established in the line of David, that promised back in chapter 7, has been established in Christ Jesus, born that first Christmas. Part 1 is complete. Part 2 is to come. But remember, our kingdom hope can never be certain if we look to just ourselves, personal experience. But it is certain because God has revealed it. And as you look back to the song, I hope you can trust him. God's kingdom is certain. Secondly, God's kingdom is attractive. 
Look how God speaks in verse 3. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. It's beautiful, isn't it? I'd love to say more here, but note the attractiveness of the kingdom and the kingly rule. This ruler doesn't have to crush his subjects or fleece his subjects with insane taxation or just taking all the money from them. Nothing like that. He rules to love and nurture his subjects. You see, the kingdom of God is attractive. Why? Because the king is attractive. And his name is Jesus. Whether we look to democracy or to dictators, we will never find a ruler that is so consumed in passion to revive, to renew, to love, to pour out his kindness on those he rules over. The Lord Jesus comes and he is a shepherd. Great shepherd. Lovingly tending his flock. What love what an attractive king. God's kingdom is also attractive because the king is attractive. God's kingdom, lastly, is exclusive. Let's finish with these last couple of verses. Verse 6 and verse 7. I'm going to read them. They are sobering. And I hope you think of individuals as we read them. Evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or a shaft of a spear, but they are burned up where they lie. It is what we all deserve. It is what we all deserve. But for the king who was willing to take the thorn. And to take the spear on a cross in our place. God's kingdom is for those who love and trust that king. The attractive king. The king whose kingdom is utterly certain for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us if we now sit here having gone through virtually every verse of this amazing two-book uh, epic. Please forgive us if we're thinking we know that well. We know the stories better than our friends. Forgive us, I pray, if that is our arrogant thinking. But may we, like David here, rejoice. May we praise you recognising your power and your strength, but your kindness and your love, your faithfulness to your promises and your provision of an eternal king whose name we know, who has been revealed to us. His name is Jesus. May we trust him. I pray. Amen.